Hey, welcome to the Social Yet Distance podcast. It's me, Jack. Tonight, we've got a really special uh, event with K.R. Morrison, San Francisco Bay Area poet, pirate girl, drummer, and instigator of creativity and hope as a teacher to the underappreciated youth in the San Francisco Bay Area, K.R. Morrison, witch poet. Stay tuned. Come for the love. It might get bloody. The magic might have been inside of us all along. Are you serious? Yeah. I told you, Michelle, I love you. I'll do anything for you. Thank you. Siri, you're awesome. Okay. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Social Yet Distance podcast. My name is Jack, and we welcome you, and we're glad that you're here. Um, tonight, we're here with K.R. Morrison. We're going to talk about the release of her book, Cauldrons, and um, her history with writing and living in San Francisco. There's her book. Yes, this would be the one right here. And um, I know that I read some bio information and some background, so we're just going to jump right in and talk with KR. Hi, KR. Hi. Good to see you. Welcome. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. I've been I've been a fanboy for a long time, <laughs> or at least a few weeks. Oh no no no. So there we go. Um, I really really do. I don't. You know, I, I, I get a lot of books. Um, I read a lot of books and I formulate some opinions. And, you know, there are certain people who really stand out from the word go. And I have to say that having not been exposed to your work um, up to this point, it, it, I really feel like I've been kind of left, left out of the loop <laughs> and missed out along the way. Um, because I, I kind of dove in um, with the release of your book, um, you know, listening to Paul and his release and the good things that he has to say about you. Um, and then the, the, the full depth and heart of the, the work itself is what's really drawn me in. And, I, you know, I, I guess the question I want to know automatically 
is, you know, how, how is it that you're able to tap into that um, almost ancient spirit that, that kind of comes across in the writing? And we'll give some examples of that shortly. I don't even know how to answer that. Um, I know that there's been a few ingredients to tapping in and one of them is to, is to listen um, and to be prepared when stuff comes to you. So I can't count how many, it's actually a kind of private joke I have during Moon Ritual with spirit where it's like, I. I wonder how many poems have come to me that I wasn't ready for. So for example, in the morning, I'll, I'll have a great poem idea, but I'm tired and lazy and I don't wanna like get up and get to work on what it is that is coming to me. And then I think, oh, I'll remember later. And I, and I sit there and sort of map out in my head what to remember. And of course, never fails. I wake up later and it's gone. It is gone, like amnesia. It's completely gone. And I cannot tap into it. I have no idea what it was. So I think the, the biggest answer to that question is to create a discipline that you have that allows you to sort of receive. Um, and then of course there's like those poems that don't come to you like that. And that, and that I, you spend draft after draft after draft, like editing and making the like uh, one nation under murder is an example. I, I had a, a rhythm that came to me that I wanted to use. I didn't, and I knew what I wanted it to be about, um, which is, you know, um, shootings by law enforcement, murders by law enforcement, and the sort of connection that has to um, the ancestry, not necessarily of people individually, but of the country. And mm. um, I knew I wanted to do that, but I did. I had no idea what the content would be. And there was no like morning, oh, I have an idea. It, it was sitting in front of a, a computer and then a journal and then, and then back to the computer, print out, edit, journal, on and on. That one took forever. So yeah, I mean, a discipline or some sort of set of habits is how I, I try to receive messages to convey in a poem and, and they're certainly not mine. Um, none of them are. Yeah, I I understand that struggle, and I and I can see where in my own writing, where that in other areas, obviously, um, where developing that discipline can make the difference, and not just the productivity, but in the quality. You know, I mean, I have a, a nasty habit of when that idea comes, I'll yell at Siri or open up my notepad and make, you know, whatever note I need to know how to flesh that thought out later, if that's what I want to do. But what tends to happen is I've got all these long lists of words and phrases and explanations of phrases that are all completely unrelated and disconnected. <laughs> and, I heard that. You know, yeah. And so I'll go back to something I've been writing for the past five years, <laughs> you know. No, I, I have those too. I, you know, like these come to me and I'll, you know, jot down some notes in the note section of my phone and then I go and retrieve them. And 
there's a sort of constellation that you have in mind when they come to you that can't be communicated in the note. And then, you know, here, and then you have these, like you said, set of words or whatever, and you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, like, it's it's the know. writing equivalent of um, what I call um, um, thresholdism. It's, it's when you have this idea, you've got to run in the next room and get whatever the idea was. And then as soon as you cross the threshold into the next room, you completely forget why you go into that room to begin with. It's the same thing with writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and in my case, with the, with the threshold, I have to go back and retrace my steps in order to remember what it was. Can't do that with writing <laughs> if I don't yeah. finish it right then. <laughs> yep. Would it be uh, appropriate to read that particular poem right now? Sure. Did you want me to read that one? I did. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want you to read whatever you want to read. No, uh, I like your choices. Let's go with those. Um, I, yeah, that, I am. Um, I, like everybody else, was very jarred and devastated over George Floyd's murder. Um, I don't know why that one in particular, and it wasn't just because the video was so hard to watch. It was, it was something else. And I, I think it, it, it just sort of intersected with a lot of things I, I had going on inside of me. So I really spiraled into a depression over that shooting. Um, and it was kind of a, a kind of empathic bottom. Um, and that's when, that's how this poem started. Um, and again, it started with a rhythm. Now, if I can find it, <laughs> there it is. All right, One Nation Under Murder. I hear ancestors beneath my skin. Southern dead sing heavenly hymns. I clench grief and boil. Blisters rise from my deerskin fists. Lovers can't breathe. I hold my breath. Whips possess my nails. Slice lynch ghosts into my flesh. I smell spells here. Inhale the conjuring. Breathe out the casting. Revolution and reform argue at a dinner table like a tired couple, their marriage arranged. Daughter Justice, she rolls her eyes, dresses in a wardrobe that's restless. She itches to break curfew, curses progress. She envisions beyond their food at the table. I hear karmic returns hatching, so many seeds sprouting, loud flowers blooming from systemic stems, from brave weeds, I hear scar anthems sprouting. Some of us march, our bone collections stir orbit storms. We take bullets for too many dead. Some of us harbor graveyards in our stomachs. For justice, we bury our silence. Under America's democracy dirt, for justice, we turn blue. We hold our breath. That's a really deep poem. 
Um, it's also very Southern in its tone. Is that intentional? No, that's cool. Cause it's, you know, um, back to those, those moments where you're sort of like connecting to something ancient. Um, it, it's meaningful to hear that. And that's great because I, I was very mindful of this sort of ancestral connection these shootings have with the country and, um, you know, with sort of the archaeology or anatomical journeys, if you will, of slavery and what it's become in current America um, compared to what it used to be. And the way these, you know, the, you know, there's all these arguments and divides and people talking about these shootings and what it means. Um, and I think we're losing sight of, and we often lose sight of um, the way cops work for a system that is in its very flesh racist. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to have these constant personalized fights over whether or not we should fuck the police or support the blue or whatever is is really just a convenient distraction from like what i think is a a, a way more um um systemic disease you know yeah Whether systemic is the word that that jumped out obviously but um you know i was feeling it from a more societal level than like law enforcement that perspective um, well because i think it is more societal level law enforcement is um a contingency of that you know um, well when I, what i mean by that is the way that i grew up in atlanta georgia which when i was a small kid was relatively racist. And then throughout my lifetime, I watched that progress and change to where now all the places where I used to hang out and where once were actually considered to be bastions of white privilege are now all multi-racial, multi-ethnic, ethnic, um, bastions of whatever you know right. shopping usually or drinking or whatever um but those attitudes shifted along with that mm -hmm. and so now so that's the society i mean i saw those changes happen in the people as those things change i remember it was a big deal when def jam records came to atlanta you know that was a big deal you know and people didn't like that shit because this is where the Almond Brothers and Marshall Tucker came from, dude. The Black Crows, you know, REM. This is no, you know. And what is rap music anyway, you know? Meanwhile, you know, now we've got the housewives, you know, <laughs> who are all black, all living in a very white neighborhood and a very white country club estates in a very much suburbs of the city of Atlanta, you know where they wouldn't have been allowed to go. Stone Mountain, where they, where the majority of the town is black now, Stone Mountain's where they held the Klan rallies. <laughs> and now the town is, you know, basically black. 
So from society, that's what I mean by society. All those ideas change, but now the system, the systemic part of it is ripping all those band-aids off now. Right. And then I think band-aids is the perfect word. Um, I mean, and that's why the daughter justice rolls her eyes. You know, it's, it's like, what, what good is it that we have these sort of progressions? I had a, a poet that I know in the Bay Area had actually made a post once about walking by, um, I guess like a couple or something. And one, and the girl had a Black Lives Matter t-shirt on, but the minute she saw him black male, she, she grabbed her purse just out of instinct, just out of instinct, grabbed her purse and, you know, and of course, initially upon first seeing that post, um, my stomach hurt and I dropped and, but then I thought about it and it's, it's, that's the sort of, um, frustration that I, that I have is that I, I don't know, I don't know that I, I necessarily trust the progress made by reform. And I think what we're seeing now more than ever is, is the way in which they're band-aids. Um, and that's a problem for me. Uh, I mean, I mean, and if it's a problem for me, imagine the type of problem it is for black community, you know, but I mean, I, I just, I speak that way because my godchildren are black. Um, most men that I've loved are black. Um, I don't have a very typical background regarding, um, I have a very mixed family. So, but that said, I mean, here we are two white people having this conversation. I mean, imagine what it's like to be somebody walking down the street and it's not a clan member that clutches their purse or the clan member's wife. It's person in a fucking Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Right. You know, it's, that's, I, I, I can't imagine that. I don't know. Well, it gets back to what we were saying earlier about the labels, you know, I mean, labels, you know, the labels are the band-aids, you know, I, I, I think of my grandmother who was a beautiful, very straight laced, good Christian Southern lady and, you know, would never in a million years be, perceived to be racist that doesn't mean she wasn't but she would never stand for being perceived and so that the way she modified her own behavior to do that was to not use the n-word anymore and say nigra instead you know that was her compromise and that and that you know that was the way i heard her refer to african-americans all my life and it was much preferable to what was being said in the other rooms that I was in, you know, meanwhile, you know, here's the white kid, one of three in a black school, you know, in the middle of downtown Atlanta. Well, and it's interesting. It's the preferred word, you know, I mean, the word itself is derived from a set of scientists that were literally hired by a queen that was searching for like ultimate power over whatever territories had the gold. So you know, it's like, it, it, for me, that Negra and, and the other version, to me, are just as violating, you know, to hear. Right. I mean, that's I, the, I don't know. I mean, I'm that's not... the systemic part. That's the whole point. Right. That's the systemic part. It's yeah. like, just don't, you know, let me step out of the systemic part and we'll be okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
I, and I also don't like, you know, you see things like Black Lives Matter and I, God, I, I remember being at protests for Oscar Grant. He was a guy shot at the Fruitvale station in, in the Bay area. Uh, I, I was a high school teacher. I was part of Oregon. I was part of a political group at the time and, and played a part of those demonstrations among many other groups to like make that happen. And so what I've seen Black Lives Matter do, I'm just, all, I'm in awe and I support it hundred percent. I, I don't wanna give off the impression that I think there's something false or just labelistic or like not powerful or even reformist about it. Like it doesn't have to be. Um, I just, I feel like the issues that things like Black Lives Matter are fighting are, are so, I feel like people aren't honest about the way these matters exist inside of their flesh and exist inside of their skin. And back to our conversation earlier about ancestry and the way it, it manifests itself as sicknesses in our body. Um, right. I don't think this is any different, you know? Um, and that's where my heart and soul goes when these shootings happen now. Um, and it's a dark place to be in those shadows. And then to be a woman who feels like she has no power to fix it other than what I do on the day to day with the lovers in my life and the kids that I help and, you know, familia that I know. And yeah, it is a necessary poem. It, out of this whole collection, it was the hardest poem to craft. You know, I, I take I so. responsibility being a white woman writing a poem like that. It's like, I don't want to culturally appropriate and accidentally. I also don't want to act as some kind of voice for a struggle that, you know, is much bigger than me. Um, well, and that's the issue. It is, it is systemic. And we do have these band-aids that have been put in place. And, and ultimately, you know, when you use the word reform, what we're talking about doing is reforming a systemic problem. Why do we want to reform that? We want to be rid of that, you know, right. and right. and that's a right. different that's a different struggle, and that's one that we can all be involved in. Um, exactly. I, but you know, the reality still exists to me that somebody taught me a long time ago that 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 ultimately we were born with all the morals and values that we need, but it was all our trauma and 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 experience and this, that, or the other thing that has made us have the beliefs that we have about things and the tools that we use to deal with those things. And the thing, the truth of the matter is I have removed myself from those values and those morals. And if I'm able to go back to those, then guess what? You don't need a system. You don't need rules. You don't really need laws because everybody has the morals and the values and they live the golden rule or whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to aspire to. I and take issue with the golden rule and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> the golden rule assumes that what's good for you is good for me and it ain't always the case, you know, uh, or, you know, and, yeah. I mean, it's empathy versus sympathy. The golden rule is a, is a very, I'd say, Western white idea. This idea that like, oh, well, I would want this or you must want this, you know? No, <laughs> sometimes people's whole framework is entirely different than yours. And 
consequently what they want or need or require or desire is, is different. You know, I'm, yeah, the golden rule is, is to me like the colonizer, like, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh no, like with you. So, well, I, I don't know that I would argue with that perception, but I, I would say that, that I, I think that the idea behind it, at least for me in saying it, is that if I treat you the way I want to be treated, then, then we're going to get along just fine. And we, you know, now that doesn't necessarily mean I'm trying to impose what I, I want on you. It's just if I treat you that way, you know, the, that, that if I want to be treated with compassion, then I should treat you with compassion. If I, if I want to be loved, then I should treat you with love. That's all. It's, it's not no, a. I no, yeah. I get it on a very logistical level. It makes a lot of sense. Oh, but me and that fucking brain. <laughs> <laughs> I just sometimes, you know. They call me a dickhead for more than one reason, you know. Oh, I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. But I, I bought, you know, I'll never forget um, learning about that difference between empathy versus sympathy. And interestingly, it was in a college course for teaching high school. And I remember that night just nerding out and not sleeping and getting way into this book that they assigned to us because I had always felt that way. Like I always felt like this, here it is. This is what I've, what I've been saying because sometimes <laughs> like sometimes what people feel and think and want are just fucking different, you know? Right. And I think the only reason I knew that always is because I grew up in a family that was so night and day. Mom's side was mixed race, um, very struggling financially. Uh, my mom was evicted all the time. Uh, different, I guess, hood neighborhoods uh, around Long Beach area. And then dad was white, upper middle class, depending on the area. Um, so I was always exposed to the fact that people don't want the same things or even value the same right. things. The version of wealth on my mother's side was so different than the version of wealth on my dad's side. And so my notion of currency was just different. Um, yeah. You know, and then I, and then the code switching of like, oh, well, I know what you mean by this and I know what you mean by it. Yeah, yeah, I, I I get you. Believe me, <laughs> I, I I consider myself once upon a time to be quite the chameleon and in easily able to walk into a room and size up what vibe I needed to put off to be able to walk out of there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sadly, and, I think a lot of us have to learn that. I, there's nothing sad about it to me. I mean, I hope that people don't have to go aren't as hard-headed as I was, but at the same time, I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced I would have learned it any other way. I would have always thought there's some other way, you know, and tried to figure it out. If my, if my brains don't do it and, you know, my willpower don't do it, then I'm in trouble. And that's when I got to start looking for answers. And what I've learned in that process is that those things are fallible. <laughs> They're going to lie anyway. <laughs> so well, what's the next poem we should hear about that, you think? Uh, what do you want to hear next? Sacrament. Sacrament. 
Oh yeah, that's a good transition. 21. Yep. Sacraments. If he's not careful, all these hurting girls with moon cycles will collect her monthly red juju into mason jars like magic ruby bullets. She will phase him away with buried poppets. Armed and charmed, he will end by her holy blood. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's really a poem about the patriarchy, but it was inspired by Mr. Trump, as I told you earlier. Um, you know, and, and well, I guess actually I shouldn't, it was triggered by that, but it's really inspired by the potential of divine feminine. Um, and I say that instead of women on purpose, because there ain't no reason why a male can't be a part of that. Um, but, you know, just the power we have in femininity during a time, which is still sort of the case, but especially when he was in office, when I thought, the, well, a lot of light workers thought that like the country was just being shrouded in hyper-masculine energy. Um, and we were watching just the consequences of that, you know, the ship going down and everybody ripping each other's heads off. So, and then do a little imagery in there about spell work and, and, and blood and the cycles of a woman's body and that the power of that cycle and, and what the power of menstrual blood specifically in spell work is pretty known. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, it's, it's always great to hear like where a poem comes from because in reading it myself and then even in listening to it and even knowing that that was inspiration, um, that thing was, that was a personal poem mm. that felt pointed at me. Oh, but not, but not necessarily like pointed by you, but uh, um, it was a much more universal, global, like, um, Jack, here's a lesson, <laughs> <laughs> you know, not like here's an arrow, you know, not here's a dagger, nothing like that. It's like, here's the flashing sign, pay attention. So I'll, I'll probably be reading that one again for the next couple of days. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, keep me posted. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I would. I'd be interested to hear your response to that, though. Actually, what I, my take on it? I would. I would be happy to hear about that and have a conversation about that. I mean, it's you know, there's so much fragility around like feminist um, work and anything feminists do. And I, I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, I know that I can't speak for other feminist writers, but I know for me, which funny thing, if you told me at like 14, 15, 16, 17, I was gonna end up a feminist poet, I would have laughed at you or hit you. Uh, <laughs> 
it's pretty interesting I've ended up here. But I, I mean, I can't speak for other people, but I know for me, I, I, I welcome those kinds of conversations. Anyone who knows me knows I love men. Um, there are quite a few that I, I love dearly. Um, and, and I think in energies, I don't think in gender um, necessarily. So do I write about what women have struggled with in the face of a patriarchy? Absolutely. And if a man has a problem with that on an individual level, well, that's there's there some shadow, <laughs> there's some shadow work he's got to do there, and I'm happy to have that friendly, safe conversation with him. I wouldn't be one bit hostile. I've had it uh, several times, you know. Um, and then I think people assume that I'm like some sort of man hater until they start really reading what I'm writing and they realize it's not the case at all. Um, yeah, I, I think again, it's the same old thing for me, at least the same old thing that it's been recently is the fucking labels. And, you know, the term, I, I worked for a couple of years for the Goodman Project. And, you know, our sole desire was to, to, to approach men with like how to be real people and, you know, how to not be a, 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 a member of the patriarchy and, you know, try to learn some shit together. Um, but the, the interesting thing was it was mostly women who ran it, um, which is great, actually, as far as I'm concerned. So I'm, I'm okay with the whole idea, you know, of feminism. I stopped calling myself that because I like the term egalitarian better because I don't, I don't understand the academic side of feminism enough, like the whole bell hooks and whatever, you know, the history and the different. Yeah, it's very complex. And there's many yeah, I don't understand all that. And the times I have asked for assistance have not been met very well by the people I approach for some education on that. So I just, I think it's just another label. And, and the truth of the matter is, I feel like everybody should be equal. And if, if it, and yes, we both have feminine and, and male energy and it's that balance. So, you know, I, in talking with you today, I mean, that, that's, it's become a little bit more clear that I was a lot more in touch with that than what I thought. And as evidenced by the fact that I made a conscious effort to not use that word for that reason, you know, mm -hmm. well, I run a lot at the mouth too. So, but uh, it makes sense to me. Um, you want to do some more? You want to hear next? You want to hear, I think you said you wanted to hear which poet and two Charlottes. Yeah. Two Charlottes is a good, maybe a good place to go. Yeah, I think so. Um, the story behind this is great. I, um, he's a dear friend now, but uh, I was like a year into losing my mom and it, it was dark. It got pretty dark. And New Orleans, I always refer to as like my heart home. And I, I actually went there a, quite a few times after she had passed because I, I I did a lot of writing there and I did what I thought was a lot of healing there, but really it was a lot of like pirate life and writing. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I don't know how much healing I did in New Orleans at that time, but um, I ran into this guy and we looked at each other and I was like, oh, you're a witch. And he was like, you know, and sure shit he was. And um, we just kind of smelled it right away. And so we're like for the 14th drink in like bunch of drugs. I don't even know what time it is. And we're on Decatur street and I'm blah, blah, blah about my mom. And then her name comes out and he looks at me and he said, that's my mom's name, Charlotte Ann. And talk about speaking of my own shadow work with like my divine masculine side, I just lose it. I'm like, fuck, who's going to do that? How are you going to hooker my mother's death to try to like get in with me, you know, and make something like that? Who does that? And I just start going on and on and on. And he's like, baby, he's like, baby, I'm telling you, I, at my mother's name, Charlotte Ann, and she passed at this time, whatever. And I'm like, this fucking guy. And he's saying that his mother died, like not the same day, but the day after or the day before and day after. And I, and I thought he was full of shit. And then sure, sure enough, he pulls it up on his phone. Her name was Charlotte Ann and she died a day after my mother died. Um, and so after that, we became fast friends. Um, and we joke that our mothers made us meet, you know? Um, so yeah, I wrote this poem about their, about my mother and his mom and him. That is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Two Charlottes. I saw them in the flame, cascades of divine feminine, long hair around longing oval faces, women wrapped around one another in our name. I saw them in the flame, two Charlottes, where blue wounds summon the moths. In Marigold, I saw our mothers meet. Mine pours yours, Corbel. Yours unwraps endless red silk from her neck a fire offering for the white buffalo behind the bar. She spots her grit, former life stuffed beneath steel fingernails, so sanguine forages. Blood sacrament from her father unhinging, same old ancestor songs unfolding. I saw them in the flame, mother words dressed in me and you. I think I heard them say they sent me to Decatur Street to find you, to detangle pirate girl knots, give healing and my amethyst something to do. Only in New Orleans, huh? <laughs> I know. You know, I was on a podcast in the Bay called Bitch Talk and uh is feminist podcast and um we were talking about new orleans and how it's a psychic seaport and um i mean in a way you can say that about the bay as well i mean obviously with the changes that's happening there it's a little bit harder to uncover but it's still very much there that's that capacity um i have all kinds of weird things happen in san francisco similarly to new orleans but new orleans is on like a whole other level like the strange um, ways the universe will reach you and get at you if you're if you're um, open to it. Yeah, my um, 
my psychic experience with New Orleans was not so pleasant. I, I've been there several times. And um, on both occasions, driving into the city, it felt like I was driving into a dark cloud. Yeah. And I felt um, one time I was there on business, I was there about six weeks. And that whole time, I, I just, it was incredibly depressing. Um, the, the other time was actually during Mardi Gras, but it was a, um, a different I was only there for a much shorter period of time and it was the exact same thing. As soon as I drove into town, it was like a cloud. Hmm. And I never did figure out that. And I felt it in one other place and it was Memphis. And I, I'm, I don't know why that is. Um, well, hmm. you know, there were things that happened to me in Georgia. Um, but I know, I know what that was about. You know, that's a different story. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, I, and I, when I think about it now that you've said that, um, they were very um, similar points in my life. Not necessarily the same time, but they were similar points. I was I was going to say, but I uh, was reluctant because I don't, it's just way too back to being presumptuous. But I've always said, now I'm no expert, and I'm also not a a person you know that's been born and raised in places you have i think there's a lot that people from places like california say and sometimes i catch myself saying them and i just want to slap me <laughs> uh, with that said i i feel that i've spent so much time there i i feel like new orleans makes you face yourself uh and makes you face what's inside of yourself or you know what's pulling it at you at your soul um I know that I've I've been into some dark depths being in New Orleans because I went there with you know grief um, and then I've gone there with a lot of PMA or positive mental attitude sort of mindset you know and so when I end up having this epic time of joy and serendipity and oh my gosh you're from and you know meeting people that become messengers well that happens either way but um yeah it's a place that i plan to spend a lot more time in eventually i like to live there for a little while yeah i mean i could see that and i definitely buy your um you know your whole perspective on it because when I say that it was a similar point, I mean, there was some resistance going on in my world otherwise, you know, that would have certainly fed into that, I would think. Mm. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, you know, one of the things that I was listening to a podcast earlier with, um, I believe it was you and Paul and Georgina. Mm -hmm. Georgina Marie. Yeah. And, um, you guys were talking about you, you specifically were talking about having to take breaks in your creativity, like for your wellness. And I'd like to hear a little bit, um, a little bit more about that and, and, and flesh that out a little bit more about what you really meant by that. Yeah. that It's um, so full disclosure. I had terrible, connection in that podcast and Georgina did a beautiful job editing through my constant zoom interruption on my end um 
where I was staying had really bad reception. So actually I was saying that I have to take breaks from working with kids in order to maintain a commitment to my creativity. Um, I've been teaching high school for 17 years. Um, and it's hard to describe, but it's every bit something, a creative something that I do as much as poetry or music or mm -hmm. you know, it's something I'm called to. It's something that nourishes me. It's one of my many antidepressants, I always say. Um, but I have, and it's weird, like the, this is my second time taking a writing sabbatical. And the first one, I really had to be, I learned, I, I learned the hard way that like the art of teaching writing and the art of writing itself really informed one another. And I had taken myself out of the classroom um, and it was tricky to stay creative in that, in, the, in the, any sort of capacity. I, I think this round's going to be different. I'm going to be able to dive into like a, a creative regiment and the key component that I didn't have then that I do now is sobriety. Um, and just like, you know, having a set of habits in place that allow me to actually produce some work. But right. when you, I mean, I, I've had, I know it's a buzzword these days, but I've actually like been diagnosed with like empathic problems. And when you have that, and I say problem because it can be, it's like, you're sure. like the same thing that makes me a really, um, the same thing that makes me like love teaching is the same part of me that sort of back to that golden rule sees their situations that are not my situations. And then I, I literally start feeling them and it, it's energy consuming and it gets to the point where you just don't mm -hmm. have anything more to give when it comes to producing a book or like curating right. an event or whatever. So um, I was saying that I, I have to take breaks from a teacher life in order to not just stay an artist, but like mental health, you know, um, right. and this seemed like a good year to do it again because of COVID right? and the shit show that will be the schools. And I just don't want any part of it, you know? Um, yeah, I don't blame you there. Um, you couldn't pay me to go to a school here in Florida. Um for a million bucks, probably. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing that struck me, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about um, how you kind of know where that line is in, in, in working with other people. And, you know, the thing that I was always taught was if I'm walking away tired, then I'm using my will and my resources to try to not necessarily fix, but to do the work for that other person. I think it's the same thing with what you're yeah. describing here as well. Um, if, you know, what I heard in the, in the play of the podcast was for me, this elusive term that people use writer's block, which I think is I, I think it's fixed by, you know, like what you said earlier, it's fixed by a discipline. And I mean, I think you can work yourself out of that if you choose to do that. However, 
what I was feeling at the time was like, well, maybe that's just a physical manifestation of how tired you really are of that. And, 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 and you're not tapping into that creative because there's something else that's not being fed. So I'm hearing it the opposite of the way you're actually describing it. You know, you're, you're, you're describing taking a break from that so you can stay focused on the creative. And I'm looking for a way to get more creative because I'm getting sidetracked with other things. So that's, I mean, that's kind of why it intrigued me. I wanted to hear more about it. Um, yeah, I, and it's it back, I, I, maybe it's a good conversation to have in like June, because maybe I'll have a whole other thing to say. Um, but I know that like, I've never been more creative than I am working with those kids. It's right. not that it's that it's so much, it's so much energy, not to mention the time commitments of like grading and designing lessons and, you know, but there's, it really wasn't just a teaching job for me and it, right. and it never will be. I, and I'm not so convinced that it is for any committed teacher. I think it's healer work. And, and I don't say that all arrogantly, like, Oh, I'm the healer. I'm, I, they heal you every bit as much as you heal them. Right. There's something, if you're going in that room, honestly, and you're in there loving what it is you're teaching. And in the case of me, absolutely like writing and, you know, uh, I creative writing class. I, I taught as well. It's like, I go in there. It's, there's something bigger that I'm doing and it takes a lot out of you. It, um, yeah. and, and it's not like, Oh, I'm so resentful. I've always taken out of me. I it's its own medicine and it's its own poetry. It's its own poem. You, you should read some of Scott Young stuff if you never have. Do you know Scott? Mm-mm. Scott Young with one T. He um, runs Rusty Truck. Um, he is an administrator. He's a principal. And he writes about the kids, man, let me tell you. And he, he, he is, of all the people I know, he encapsulates that relationship. And I'm, I know you will love his work at the work that's related to school. Um, what's the name of his book? Anyway, he's all over Scott Young, one T. Um, yeah. So that's kind of why I wanted to dig into that. Uh, You know, I, I struggle with other issues related to writing and it, you know, it's similar things to what we've been talking about. It's just this um, developing a a practice and just kind of falling into a a rote behavior for a while right now, because I'm trying to break a bad habit and it's too easy. I'm looking for a, a justification as well, because it's too easy to fall into writer's block. You know, that's just bullshit. You know, I don't, I mean, I don't have writer's block. I'm blocked from sitting my ass down and writing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I was looking for an answer. Damn it. I'm going to have to work, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so with all that in mind, the only other thing I can think of that can heal me besides poetry would be some witch poet somewhere. You don't happen to know any witch poets, do you? <laughs> Well, talk about perfect timing. 
just just happen to have a witch poet poem, don't you? <laughs> I can't I can't think of a better uh, a better time for what what did I just do right now? Hold on. You're still there. I still see you. So okay, I clicked something. I don't know what. Hold on. There you are. <laughs> um, what a better time for tech problems is when you announce which poet. That's how it works. I know, right? right? Clickering. This is actually an older poem, also. Um, and I believe it was Paul. Paul Corman Roberts actually edited this collection before Paper Press got their hands on it. And, um, you know, obviously, for obvious reasons, I, you know, take Paul's advice very seriously. And I think he's, I had like, I told him I want 13 poems and there's a reason for that number. Sure. And um, I think he's, if memory serves, was like, yeah, which poet has to be in there. But this is one of my older ones for sure. Well, I, um, you know, I know the answer to the 13, but would you like to tell everybody else why there's 13 poems? Yeah, so it, it's the number of the divine feminine. Um, you know, there it's Friday the 13th. I actually just posted a bunch about this, but the hit, real history um, behind that word pre-patriarchy or number pre-patriarchy was um, it was the number of the divine feminine and became blessed mother, mother's number when we see Christianity happen. Um, there's 13 moon cycles um a year um and that sense like a, a sacred number of of what it means to have that energy which is what this collection is really about that sort of stirring of i mean it, it, this wasn't planned but like a stirring of themes around ancestry and love and loss and struggle and uh wounds and in that stirring, like, you know, the shadows you find in the light that you find, mm -hmm. which is really its own spiritual process for people like me who, who, you know, practice that form of witchcraft. So, um, as a mode of healing. So yeah, 13 poems. Cool. Yeah. All right. Witch poet. Here we go. Remember what page that's on? <laughs> Yeah, um, oh, 1920. Yeah, yeah, which poet before he hijacked her diction, she wrote for topics that matter mother starving for more wounds, black eyed bruisers and scathed street kids, wishes blocked from sunburns, worded by winter. Now under his spell, her word revolutions wait while she prostitutes for male pronouns. But poets needn't worry. Whores either die or they recover in the wake of a heretic's regret. They resurrect as a Serengeti elephant, guiding damaged girls back to dictionaries for a little witchcraft for a cauldron stinking of rich diction, self-respect. Strong blood from her pen returns her to summon Amazons, haunting him in sleep in manuscripts. Her words, such spells escort her back, 
Her words burn him in the fire she conjured him. That's so good. So good. Thank you. Thank Does you. every single poem have blood in it? <laughs> you know, probably. I don't know. That's a really good question. That, that's actually interesting because I it, it's like all the ones I picked did. Hmm. That's interesting because things are, you know, it's funny. I've had certain friends tell me these different processes that are happening with the book and um, I've enjoyed it in like a lot of gratitude hearing like the weird things that have ha are happening to certain friends. Um, and that's an, in that's probably the most interesting. Like you're, you're being drawn to the poems that have the word blood in it. Well, you know, there could be a reason for that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Thank <laughs> well i want to thank you um for the time tonight and appreciate and oh, the conversation and i'm sure the audience will be great um i am gonna say goodbye to everyone else and you and i will say goodbye thanks everybody for thank being here for say goodbye yeah, thank you so much for having me this is awesome much appreciated all right you say stay tight sit tight Life is everywhere. You don't have to go on the road. You don't have to, you know, sell your teeth and move into a squat in order to live life. You just have to attend to the community you're in and be aware of people around you. And, and I find that, you know, privilege has a way of insulating you from having to deal with that. Hey guys, it's me, Jack. Um, it's come to be that time where we are looking for a little bit of support for the Social Yet Distance podcast. This is a labor of love. We're not looking to get paid, um, but we do have requirements that um, come on a regular basis that we need to be attentive to and responsible for. So we always are relying on the support of our listeners. We appreciate you being here and value everything you do. And um, we've offered a number of different ways that you can support us. If you'll visit socialyetdistance.com, you'll see a list of links at the top of the page. You can join us on all our socials. You can visit us at the merchandise stores. You can uh, purchase books and artwork from us and support us through a couple of different means there as well. So please visit socialyetdistance.com for more information on how to support. We need you. We love you. See ya.